my grandfather, he would always say, you don't care about me. I, I grew you up. I grew you up. And I said, you didn't grow me up. You used to go play cards illegally at the back of the university cafe while I passively smoked 80 cigarettes a day. Okay, Conchetta, quick question. Yes. Okay. Imagine you were part of a team that made a brilliant film that perfectly captures life in Australia. I can see myself doing that. Okay. So imagine this then. That film then becomes so big that it gives new phrases to Australian English. I can definitely see myself doing that. Okay. 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 If that's you then, what phrases would your movie make popular? Um, that's awesome sauce. <laughs> Do you like that one? <laughs> yes, I, I very, <laughs> despite the pain my face is showing, <laughs> yeah. I really, is that really pain? like awesome sauce. Well, <laughs> today's guest has kind of been there and, and done that, Conchetta. Si uh, chiama Santo Chilaro, or in English, Santo Chilaro is his name. He's Australian-born but Sicilian-bred. Santo's parents were post-World War II migrants to Melbourne. He was a middle-class kid in the working-class suburb of Collingwood, a top student, and he won a scholarship to high school and then did law at uni. But before he was even finished with uni, Santo and his mates Tom Gleisner and Rob Sitch hit the big time when their student sketches turned into a comedy show on TV. And so the crew that would become Working Dog Productions was born. From there, Santo and Tom dropped out of careers in law, Rob quit medicine, and instead they turned their attention to making TV shows and movies like... Degeneration. The Late Show. Frontline. The Castle. The Panel. Russell Coit's All Aussie Adventures. Thank God you're here. Have you been paying attention? Pacific Heat. And Utopia. The 1996 film The Castle was a particular triumph. As I mentioned before... Lines came out of that that are just now phrases in Australia, like that's going straight to the pool room or tell him he's dreaming. And of course, in conclusion, it's Marbo, it's the vibe. <laughs> They're all now part of the way we speak in Australia. Well, enough of that career talk. Today, we're dodging the kind of questions a comedy king like Santo has fielded before. And instead, we're looking into his life as a piece of the puzzle that is Diaspora Italia. Look, to begin, we've got so many questions for you. We're so excited to get into this. I just wanted to start with pretty much let's go with what I'm learning about Italy. Is you, there's not just one Italy, like one experience. It's very based in regions and it's so different depending where you go. So what region are your relatives from? They're a bit of a mixed bunch uh, and they certainly ended up all over the world. But um, let's go to my dad. My dad is uh, Sicilian. So, um, you know, he's, uh, and according to my ancestry.com, uh, I think we, we go back about 10,000 years. So it's, a, <gasps> it's, wow. it's, it goes back a long time or possibly Anatolia in Turkey, but that's a different podcast. Um, and, <laughs> not, uh, yeah, not this you know, one. No, no. So yeah. So Sicilia, my, my father is from a, a very small town, uh, in the provincia di Catania. So actually closer to Syracuse than Catania, but on the, on the East coast of Sicily, um, my mother, on the other hand, she was born in Alexandria in Egypt, and uh, she was of Calabrian, uh, Calabrese stock, uh, uh, originally from Catanzaro, um, which is 
crazy, some... crazy because that's where my family from. Really? Okay. <laughs> I just so can't have you, get have over you, it. Have you been? Have no, you been to oh. never. But can I say, I assume you've been, and from what I've heard from my cousins is that it's beautiful, but it's actually quite like a bit, not bleak, but like bland, a bit poor, <laughs> a bit like mafia vibes. Would you agree, yeah. disagree? Yeah, bleak is good. <laughs> no, no, that's that's being harsh. It's a magnificent country. You know, it's not it's not pretty, um, but mm. there's something ancient about it. There's yes. something ancient and beautiful, and you know the the earth actually speaks to you. Oh my! In my head, in in my head, that I've never been there. Catanzaro is like that scene from The Godfather where like um, Al Pacino goes away and he meets that beautiful girl. Like that's mm. just how I I'm like, yeah, that's Italy. I've been I, there in my no. mind. That, I'm wrong. I know. I've got, I'm t- got to tell you, Concetto, I, I have actually been to Corleone in, oh. in, in 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 Sicily, and it's not like Catanzaro at all. <laughs> it's it's a very intimidating place. Um, admittedly, I was there over 20 years ago, but you genuinely feel the the eyes uh, you know, look through, through the shadows and everything. Um, and it's one of those places that you, I don't know whether you want to spend a lot of time at, unless you, you know, you know people there, mm. you, you know, you're an outsider, but that's the beauty of Southern Italy. There's a sort of a, a mysteriousness to it. And it's funny because, you know, when, when, you know, people that aren't from Italian backgrounds say, oh, I love Italy. It's so alive. It's so joyful. And you go, well, you try coming to the south of Italy because it's <laughs> it's good. It's great. The food's great and the people are generous and everything. But there's a there's a kind of a reserve to, to people. You know, they, you know, mm. once you get their their trust, once they get your trust in there and, and, you know, once you start mixing, then, then it becomes a wonderful thing. But otherwise there's, you know, it's just this sort of, you know, you keep your distance and, and you know, I don't quite know you yet and, you know, we might get to know each other and then then dance. <laughs> and then vendetta. <laughs> <laughs> Santa, you gave us a delicious morsel there that I, I think we want to feast on a little bit more. Your, your mother came via Alexandria in Egypt, have I got yeah. that right? You know what, this is, it's a really odd story, Sean, because I once asked my grandfather on my mother's side who I was very close to, I was close to all, all my grandparents, but... I asked my grandfather, I never asked you, Nonna, why, how did you get to Egypt? How did that happen? What, what happened then? And he said, do you really want to know? I said, yeah, I think I really want to know. And he took me aside and he said, anyway, I was 17 and I was engaged to be married to a girl called Jezutsa, which is, it's a, such a weird name. It's, it like, it's, it's like a girl's, a girl's version of Jesus, right? Yes. No one has that name. <laughs> In, in, apart from there, there are there are girls in Sicily called Crocefissa, crucified one. Yeah, oh, absolutely. There are. These will be my daughter's names yeah. for sure. And, <laughs> and I have a good friend called Asunta too, who's a. That's a <laughs> I have an auntie called Asunta. Right, that's funny. Anyway, so he so he was engaged to be married to Jesuta, and because um, you know Southern Italy, it's a very traditional kind of place. She was always being chaperoned by her brothers, who were like tough tough dudes. Tough dudes. Mm-hmm. And um, so what happened one day, they, they, they were just about to actually formally get engaged, like the proper, you know, the ring and all that kind of stuff. And he said he got close enough to her to realize that she had bad breath. <laughs> and so I said, what? what, what is, so what does that mean? She just had a, she goes, no, 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 no. It wasn't from food. It was, <gasps> it was tooth. It was tooth. Decay. I'm going, what do you mean it was tooth? Yeah, she had bad teeth. And I said, so what did you do? He said, I ran away that night. He said he basically got on. They only had a 
a, a, a funivio, like a, a rope thing that took you from, because Catanzaro was in the old days was just up high on the hill. So, so he took the funicular, got to the port and left and never came back. Okay, that Never is came the, back. That is the first no. recorded ghosting in history. That story, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. That is tragic. <laughs> he never came back. He never. I think he must have had a brother or someone who was working in Alexandria. So he thought he'd join him, and then you know, then a couple of other brothers came, but they all went there. They and and it was because of Jesus's breath. Otherwise, that Jesus. would never have happened. <laughs> Our thoughts and prayers go out to Jezutsa and, and her, her family. family. <laughs> Condolianzi yeah, too. Yeah. Mind you, do not do not mess with those brothers though. Oh They're my tough. god. No, <laughs> no, no. Imagine no. how tough those brothers were for you to actually leave town and never come back. Holy cow. And uh, so you've got to tell us about then your family moving to Melbourne and growing up. In well, Melbourne again, in the diaspora in the 60s well, and that 70s. Was a, that was an accident as well because my other grandfather on my, on, my, on my father's side, his family, went, went, he was born in 1907 and he only died a few years ago. He was 98 when he died. But anyway, he, wow. he, he, when he was a little kid, when he was about four, his whole family migrated to Mendoza in, in Argentina and left him behind. Oh, like and, home alone. Yeah, what? Yeah, home alone, left him behind. And I said, what do you mean they left you behind? How does that happen? He said, oh, no, we had a sick aunt and she had a lot of uh, sores on her back and my job was to clean the pus off her back every day. And I said, right, that's a bad job description. I, that's, I don't know how you – no one's ever going to sign up to that job. So they left him behind. And I said, did you ever hear from them after that? And he said, in 1947, I received – a fruitcake with no letter in a box from Argentina, <laughs> and I presume it was from them. And, uh, so I go, that's fine. But anyway, at the age of about seventy-eight, he was reunited. He, he he went to Argentina and found them. So, and four of his brothers and sisters were still alive. And then, then they then he kept he kept visiting him all the time. So we still have a great relationship. I still contact my cousins in Argentina on a weekly basis. They're a magnificent family. They're so beautiful. And uh, but most of them, most of the Chilaudos are. In Argentina, not even in Melbourne. Yeah, our mouths are just open. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What? It, it, so, so to recap, yeah. your 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 grandfather was the four year old left behind. Yes, yes. So he, through pus and sores and patience, mm-hmm. has seeded ultimately this incredible <laughs> exactly. Australian line. <laughs> Let that be on wow. the epitaph from pus and sores. This man was born. No, he, 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 what happened is he, he was, she died pretty soon. <laughs> she didn't sound well, did she? She, she, she didn't last very long. And then back in the days when godfathers actually looked after kids, he was taken in by his godfather, who was basically, a, and there's still pictures of him. There's pictures. It's a guy who lived, he, he lived basically in a stable with a, a mule or a donkey or, some form of uh, beast of burden, and um, and also, but he was the only person in in the village that had a set of the civil codes, the legal civil code. So he had all the statutes there. So people would come to him to have cases decided. He was like a judge Judy of the of the of the of the of the town, and um, and somehow my grandfather learned to read and write from him, and and because of him put my dad through school and eventually through uni and my dad became a lawyer. A lawyer. Yeah, oh my because, god. Just because his grandfather was his nickname was Unutaredo, the little notary. So that was so that's the only reason I think my father ended up studying law. So it was an odd 
Odd thing. That's amazing. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so the, uh, sorry, we didn't even get to it. And then my father and my grandfather migrated to Melbourne in the early 50s. And <gasps> my dad ended up going back to Italy because he's going, what am I doing here? I'm working in a, in a shoe factory when I've got a law degree. It just, just doesn't make much sense. So he went back. But then he missed the family. The, the, his sister and, and his mother came here as well and he's on his own. And he just missed them. So he ended up coming back to Australia and they didn't recognize his law degree in Italy. So he had to study all over again. So I still remember as a little kid, used to have to sit on my dad's lap as he studied, studied uh, uh, Australian law. One of the, the dynamics of migration from the outside, are people often getting flattened into a homogenous group. And, and for post-war Italian migrants, I think whether it's cutting cane up in Queensland or working on the Snowy Hydro or indeed in a factory in Melbourne. It's very much kind of a working class, working man image. And your dad had that experience in, in the factory, as you said, but he is from a very middle class profession, very middle class background. Mm. Is, is that something that your parents and your family sort of bridled against or, or felt that they had to push back against in terms of an image or a self-conception or, or something that's placed on them by other Australians? There have been documentary makers that have been so disappointed in my story because they just assumed <laughs> that I was that I because I grew up in in the working class suburb of Collingwood that they just assumed you know I come from a working class family and somehow I don't know rose out of the you know the, you know the, the difficulties and everything and and it was quite the opposite you know yeah we grew up in Collingwood but my father was a lawyer my mother worked uh, as she worked at the tax department. She was an excellent um, um, uh, typist and, you know, she still does shorthand to this day. She's um, unbelievable at it and she's she speaks four different languages and all that kind of stuff. So, and even to the point of uh, our suburb was so full of Italians and Spanish and and, and sort of Greeks to, to a certain extent that at my school, at my local school, when people, when people say, oh, did you, did you experience much um, discrimination as a kid? And I said, yes, and most of it was, was, was given to the Australian kids. So oh. it was the opposite. So, you know, I can't, you know, you look back at stuff and go, wow, did we really let Bruce Phillips, you know, did we, did we dish out that kind of um, treatment to Bruce Phillips, poor kid? And, you know, Ian Pendergast <laughs> had to put up with a lot. Um, so... So it was quite the opposite, you know what I mean? I, I, it wasn't until uh, like I, I got it back in the day. I'm so old that there were government scholarships. So I got a government scholarship to a, a, a like a private school uh, uh, towards the end of my schooling, and it was only then that I understood that there was, you know, that people got called wogs. It was just didn't it didn't occur anywhere. So wow. I, you know, I literally, I remember once sitting on the oval playing cricket at, at the private at the new school that I went to. And one of the bully kids walked up to another Italian kid who had just come from Nidri, which is another sort of Italian kind of suburb here in, in Melbourne. And he said, hey, Wog, come over here. And the guy just got up and came to him. And I had to actually explain, go, by the way, just so you know, you do realize that Wog is a bad word. And he was going, the guy was going, oh, really? Okay. He just had no idea. Uh, so, so sometimes you, you, you're strangely enough, you're cocooned fr from all that. Mm. Oh Interesting God. you use that word cocooned. I think sometimes that can be, again, from the outside looking in, almost a way of describing a, an Italian family unit where the child doesn't just have the care and affection of the immediate parents, 
but also the grandparents and aunts and uncles are very much involved. Was that true for you? Well, look, I don't know you, Concetta. I don't know what what happens in, in with you know younger sort of at, at people of Italian descent, but certainly when I was growing up, you were looked after by everybody. Uh, basically, an uncle was basically anyone who was allowed to hit you with a belt. You know, so yeah, so, yeah. so, oh, so yeah. you know, it's like anyone, you know, anyone's fair game. Um, and in a way, there, there were people that ended up being uh, specialist tutors for you. You know what I mean? So your parents were very busy working. So your grandparents basically fed you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they gave you some form of philosophy. There was always an uncle or a godfather or a brother-in-law yeah. who, uh, who who came along and said, you know what, um, you know, let's go to the soccer. You, you say, there was a soccer uncle. The, you know, I know, I know, I know that I know that for girls there was, you know, the love auntie. You know, yes. the love advice. There was one auntie. She usually the one who was single. Usually the one who's not married, um, who to gives you a lot of advice. And there's always a health advice. So I, I don't mm. know whether things have changed at all, Conchetta. Did no, you yeah. feel that that extended kind of totally? Village? No, well, I mean, to me, I was saying like being brought up so strongly by my grandparents, like literally mm. like my parents handed me over to my nonni. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Cogra Bay with my nonna with my same name and my cousins, like every day. It was like, that was daycare. There was no concept of like go- going anywhere else. And, um, mm. I, and so that's still, and you talking about aunties, uncles, absolutely. I had an auntie who told me, cause I would always chop up my pasta. I liked having pasta with a spoon and I would like chop up spaghetti and like with a knife and fork. And she'd be like, if you do that, you'll never get a boyfriend. And how wrong she was. How wrong she was. I've got a boyfriend. I'm killing it. Um, but yeah, no, definitely. And I, that's a part of it. I, I love, I love that notion of like these big, but my family isn't actually that big. Notoriously, like my nonna had two children and then they each had two children. So my immediate cousins, I didn't, have that many. And I always remember being like, oh, I'm supposed to have like a thousand cousins in, in, in the first row, but you still feel it. I agree with you. I know my godparents and that was held sacredly. Like I didn't know why, but they're my godparents. And also my auntie and uncle were also my godparents. Like, yeah, totally relate, but I'm, I'm sure it's still changing and in ha- its own way. But how did, and did that affect the relationship you had with your parents? I mean, do, would you say that you had a a closer relationship with people outside of your parents? Because even though I get on very well with mine, I, they weren't my closest people, you know, and they're very happy about that, but they certainly <laughs> weren't the closest people to me. Well, that's so interesting. I mean, um, I think it definitely impacted me and my mother's relationship because like, and mom sort of says this in like a bad way, but like I was sort of like taken so early, didn't have like a, as much of a period of bonding with me, but also my story is a bit more complicated Santo. My Mm. father was like very violent. Like we're talking, uh, very sort of, um, controlling. Mm. So, so my my story itself is a little bit like I've got all this Italian stuff, but then inside that there's like, Oh, we've got like a DV thing that I'm sorting Mm. out. Mm. And so I was kept very controlled by my father, but then also kind of weirdly separated from my mother and like was very kept in one side of the family, like my dad's side of the family. It didn't get to see my mother's side. So this, we've just sort of gone wow. um, Australian story very quickly. But this is about <laughs> you. Sorry, this yeah. is about you. <laughs> but um, that's, but like, I relate I sh- in I sh- ways. I shouldn't have mentioned it. Uh, uh, an uncle is anyone who can hit you with a belt. <laughs> no, I take no. That back. Um, no, it's fine. We had the cuchara, which is the wooden spoon. The wooden spoon. For my nonna. That was her, like, it was a warning. Did you and have we the, knew. Did you have the pantofola, the slipper? 
Oh my God, yes. Because the slipper could hit you. That was almost like a boomerang. And it you could, yeah. travels, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> Wasn't called that word. That sounds like an amazing Italian clown. It's either, I don't <laughs> a ciabatta or a pantofla. That's the same thing. <laughs> but um, the but my but this is how separated my parents were from my life. My mum, I think, went to my school. My my first. She tell she. T- I said to my mum, she has no regrets. My mum is hilarious. She just laughs through anything. We're going to be having an argument, and she'll go. <laughs> In the middle, she'll start laughing, going, ah, it doesn't matter. You're so smart. It doesn't matter. I don't care if I lose. And, and, and anyway, she she once uh, came, decided to come to a – I said to her, Do you, have you ever had any regrets? And she said, no, no. Oh, just one. <laughs> I go, what's that? And she said, once when you were in grade four, I came to your prize night and you won an award for – you know, I don't – I didn't – can't – Obviously can't remember, but it was an award for something. And my mum said to the lady next to her, hey, that's my son. And the woman said, yeah, he wins that award every year. <laughs> and she, she just started crying because she'd never been there before. But, and so, yeah, so they, they, they kept – I don't think my dad ever came to see one of my soccer matches. Maybe it was because I was so bad at soccer, maybe. But <laughs> he never came to see me play sport, you know, very proud of me and everything. But, he, you know, he never did that. Oh my God. Well, I wanted, I, I mean, we sort of have to touch on your um, career in comedy and performing. And the question that came to mind for me is when I um, started doing performing and improv and comedy and performing, I like kept it a secret from my family because I assumed it would bring them great shame because just in my world, it was like, you go to school, you go to uni, you're like your cousin, why, like my, both my parents are optometrists. Everyone's like, are you going to be in the family business? Are you going to? So for me, it was like a crazy thing to do, to go down this route. Um, and they all know about it now. It's fine. I just was interested in like, I know you are saying that you studied and you have a degree, which is far from what I did. I'm like a three-time dropout. But I just thought like you getting into performing and the things that you did, were your family shocked? Were they impressed? Or they, was it a whole mix of emotions? Or is it entirely well, am I off? They're, they're, they're kind of shocked because I'm not a very funny guy, as in I'm not, I, I'm not a joke teller. There, there, there are lots of cousins and uncles that know how to tell jokes. You know, my parents are funny people. Um, I, I kind of grew <laughs> up I kind of grew up sort of looking at everything, you know. So, in fact, my, the only reason I got into comedy was because somehow I was the designated super eight camera person for the family. For, for, uh, I used to have uncles and grandparents who, who, who'd come back from Italy going, I bought you a super eight camera. And you go, but who died and made me the, the, the chronicler of all holy communions? I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm, I, I didn't sign up for that. And somehow I was always the person who would film at weddings and everything. So when we got to uni, um, uh, I, I got to make their, um, the films for, for, for the law reviews. We, we have a tradition of, <gasps> of uh, university reviews in Melbourne. It's a very strong tradition. So that's how I met my guys. So therefore I kept on making films and eventually, because I was writing as well, the, the sketches, they said, well, why don't you just appear in your own sketches? So I would go on stage and, you know, and sort of change demeanour and become a different kind of person. But, you know, really, you know, my mum and dad still don't understand. They're going, but you're such a, you're such a serious guy. <laughs> And um, and my cousins are forever saying, yeah, yeah, I yeah, I, I remember when you were at university and used to say, yeah, I remember you when you used to be funny. They still say that to me. And, uh, and um, so so in that case, it was a bit of a shock because right. they, they you know didn't grow up the I was never the class clown. However, 
that they they did think that I was going to be a lawyer until they realized that I probably wasn't all that good at it. I was a good student, right? And but I probably liked the my art side more, the, the classical studies that I was doing and philosophy and a few other things that I was majoring in. Um, my dad always thought that I'd, I'd eventually join him, uh, you know, as a solicitor. So it was a bit of a shock there. And they always thought it may have been a bit of a phase. You know what I mean? My grandfather would always tell yeah. people, he's a lawyer, you know, he's a lawyer. When, you know, when he goes back to law, he's going to make a, he's going he's to shovel in the money, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So there was always an expectation, I think, eventually that, you know, when, not if, but when the experiment failed that I would come back. So was there not that like worry that like my family would have of like, is this going to sustain you? Like, how are you going to make money? How are you going to be successful? Like in a career in show business? Was there any of that (laughs) kind of? No, no, there wasn't. My father was Mm. incredible. My my parents were incredible. They were incredibly patient. They had a lot of faith in me. And in fact, one of the greatest dreams uh, that I, uh, that I ever sort of realized was taking my dad to a world cup. So I, I, I grew oh, up, my great. father and I speak about soccer every single day of the, of our lives, every single day. There's not a day that goes by that we don't talk about the soccer. So my dream was to, I had been to the world cup in 1998 in France and I wanted to take him to a world cup before he got too old. So we went in 2002, we went to Japan in the world cup and we, we spent a lot, we spent three weeks together. So that was the most amount of time I'd ever spent with my dad. And it was the most amount of time my dad had ever spent without my mum. So it was kind oh, of, wow. it was kind of, and he's a really social guy and I'm a really quiet guy. So it was hilarious. He was just wanting to party all the time and I'm going, no, no, I want to read a book. But he said to me, it was interesting because he said to me, you know what, every single piece of advice that I gave you about your professional career, I just want you to tell, I wanted to tell you that I was wrong and you were right. You know, you made all the right decisions and, uh, you know, you, 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 you listened to what I had to say, but you then disagreed with it and moved on. So it was, it was a special moment and it was actually quite a good moment because I didn't actually it didn't make me feel very emotional or anything like that, which was good because it means that I didn't want my dad's approval. I, I was, I was happy that mm. I wasn't, that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, you know, it didn't affect me that much. Cause I, cause if it was, mm. if it was, Oh my God, finally he said that then yes. something wrong with the relationship. Oh, wow. So it was a great moment for both of us in a way. Um, but wow. they were very good con- concerto. They, they, they always expressed their, their caution as, I mean, I've, I've now got boys that are in their early twenties and, and I look at their career paths and I have my own reservations and, and let them know about it. But I certainly hope that they take it with a grain of salt and, and just listen to it and then decide on, on their own what, what to do. Wow. So you weren't looking for your father's approval. Okay. That's a brag. No need to rub it in. Um. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, the, the, but it's so funny because the, the the family is so hilarious. In the early days, we did a show called The Late Show, which was a sketch comedy show in the early nineties on on the ABC. And my grandfather used to be on every time we needed an old person. We got my grandfather <laughs> to come on. He, he he probably appeared more than you know any other guest on the show. And there was one time that a comedian called Judith Lucy was doing a sketch where she had a machine called the Rejuvenator where. Where she, that's why she looks so young. She said, I walk into the rejuvenator and I walk out young, younger. So the way we would do this is that, is that I, she got me out and I would walk into this box. Right. And, and then out would come a younger me and it malfunctioned. So this little kid came out, like dressed exactly like me, but he was like about eight and she got, Oh my God, it's gone back too far. Let's go the other way. And as the kid went back in, an older version of me, my grandfather came out the other one. So anyway, for the for the for the for the for this sketch to work, my grandfather and I needed to be in the box 
for about five seconds together while the kid walked out and then walked back in and I pushed him out. In that, (laughs) honestly, in those five seconds, we had a family argument and this was on live television. (laughs) This was on live television. So I literally walk in and and the kid walks out the other day and in darkness, my grandfather goes, yeah, you big shot. And I'm going, what? He goes, yeah, Mr. Television, big shot. You and your cousin, who's he's a doctor and you're a lawyer and you can't even give me a tel- you can't even afford to give me a television set. And by then the little kid has just come back in the box and I've literally pushed him out the box. You can actually see it, that a, a guy stumbling out of the box just a little bit too quickly because he managed to fit in a family <laughs> argument on live television in total in a box in total darkness in five seconds. Uh. That is so funny and iconic. <laughs> so, so if, yeah, he was an outrageous man, my grandfather. We want to. We're going to link about, that in the show notes. We got to ask about these sketches, Sean. Oh my god! Yeah, I, I, speaking of the Late Show, one of my favourite sketches of yours because it just there's so much going on, so much to to chew over as well as laugh at. Um, I think it was called the Lou Interligi story. Oh yeah, um, Lou Interligi again from yeah, yeah. the Late Show from the from the early nineties, where you're playing an Italo-Australian comedian. We get a taste of his comedy while he sort of reflects to the camera, almost sort of uh, documentary style on his approach and his philosophy uh, to performing. And he, and basically, this character Lou Interligi has had a very very profitable comedy career in what you know, would once have been called kind of straight out wog comedy, like mm-hmm. literally the word wog had to feature in the title and possibly every second uh, sentence. I believe, like he actually, he actually, yeah, I believe he actually uh, had the copyright of over the word yes. wog. Yes. I was going to say, we have to watch what we say or you know who will sue us. Yes. So. That's it. <laughs> That's it. So big st- hair stereotypes, big catchphrases, sweet mate. What kind of things and cultural currents were you making fun of there? Oh my God, where do I start? It's so such a complex piece and in it inadvertently complex. Like I didn't set out to, to, to do anything. As in at the time, I was only doing comedy before that, which was just based on my own observation. I mean, being a comedian is nothing more than being an, an observer and then crafting it. There's, there's literally nothing else to it. So you basically just keep your head up and you look at everything. Now, when you, you're young and you don't have much of an experience in life, you can only base it really on, on those limited experiences that you've had either in your family or, you know, you know just, just things around you. So, in, so I was clearly heavily influenced by my own ethnicity. I was never, you know, offended by, you know, racial-based humour. So I love doing that stuff. But then there was a bit of an industry that, that grew up in Melbourne sort of in the late 80s certainly in the early 90s, whereby you're watching this stuff get a little bit sort of, uh, uh, it's like it was becoming sort of uh, corporatized, you know, it was becoming, you know, it was becoming sort of corporate. And then what, what, what really sort of kind of made me laugh but also made me a little frustrated was that the, the people ascribing uh, like some form of uh, social commentary about it as in you know we're we're holding up a mirror to society or we're breaking down the barriers and you're going oh, wait a minute if anything you're actually doing the opposite of breaking down the barriers you i mean i i once went to a show where you know there was a comedian who said uh you know i'm you know are there any macedonians in the audience and and there was just like people booing and you're going obviously there were greeks booing macedonians I'm like this is not this is not bringing down barriers this is you know this is playing people against each other so and and I don't like people playing, I don't like 
you know, racial stuff turning nasty or anything like that. So if it's sort of harmless and, I mean, jokes are just, you know, generalizations anyway. That's how, that's how you create a juxtaposition and, and suscitate laughs. But when people started saying, started sort of giving it a sort of a, some form of higher value, so, so it's, I'm providing culture and I'm providing a thought-provoking stuff, that's when I thought, hang on, this needs to be sent up. So I, I went one step beyond and, and thought I'd have a bit of fun with that. And, you know, I, I, got a, I got a bit of, it was the first time I'd sort of really got hate mail. Like, you know, there were people saying, you know, you broke the code there. Mate, you don't do that. You yeah. don't do that. We're all wogs together. You don't do that. You don't do that. Yeah. I wanted to know what, what you meant by being in trouble. You got in trouble. Was it like from other comedians or you just mean like blowback from? Not from comedians, not from anyone else. Uh, there was good response from oh, that. Right. So there was sort of an equal response of, you know, I got a message from to you from blah blah blah. Don't do that again. There was a bit of you oh. know, it was it was tedious. I, I'm, I'm yeah. Sicilian, so you know you can. It's very easy to handle that stuff. And also, there, <laughs> strangely enough, there was there was there was equal amount of of calling up, going. I, I know I've done that kind of stuff before, but I, I promise I it wasn't. I wasn't. I won't be doing that again. <laughs> so there was this weird kind of. I'm not part Whoa. of that anymore. I was forced into that kind of world because Whoa. because I was in this group, and that's what. So it was very very. It was odd. And there were some other, there were some hard hitting bits that, that even J- Jane Kennedy was in it as well. And, you know. Yeah. And Judith Lucy too. Judith was in it. She, yeah. Yeah. No, there, yeah. Was some, there were some good people in it. But it's, yeah, I remember Jane Kennedy saying, going, you know, talking about uh, a partic- being a female comedian. And she was just doing sort of crazy dumb stuff, which is no, nothing wrong <laughs> with it. But she said, um, she said this line, which was savage. It was, um, um, wow, I, I feel really good about making, hang on. Oh my God! Do you remember Conchetta? Uh, about yeah, uh, I'm trying to uh, think about being. Oh, it's is it is it's, it that they go to a vox pop? Yes. Oh, oh that's right. Oh, yes, it's my yes, favorite. No, no, no. Mine, she's like she makes me feel good about being a dumb slut. That's right. Yeah, that we did a, a pretend vox pop where someone said, "Yeah, she makes me feel really good about being a dumb slut." And and when you think back at it, you go, it's "Wow, how, that's a that's a that's no, a pretty big call." It is so funny because Santa, I was like, I would cut that clip out, put that on my Instagram, and be like, "That's my fans to now <laughs> to this day." They would that way they would say that about me. It's like a thing that we I'm using as pride, but back then I I knew exactly what it meant in that context, and it was so yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's amazing how hard it hits and how funny it is. What are we saying? Like thirty years later, you know. Here's the thing. This is what I have no problems with with that form of of ethnic humor. It's what you ascribe to it afterwards that I object to. So, in fact, yes. in fact I use bits. I actually used bits in there. There's a, there's a piece of there's, there's this footage of me at about the age of fifteen, uh, miming stupidly to a Dean Martin song with a cigarette in my mouth. Now that's how mindless I was at the time, and then there's 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 bits of me doing uh, sort of faux stand-up comedy as Italian characters. So I, I completely partook in that. I have no shame in having partaken in in doing dumb wog comedy. But the moment <laughs> yeah. the moment you start saying that it's it's bigger than what it actually is, that's when I object. So Santo, you've. Worked in just about every conceivable sense on the stage, on the TV screen, written and performed in films in Australia. Have you taken that career and posited in Italy at all? Have you gotten a gig in Italia? <laughs> we did a show in the 
I don't, don't even remember, maybe the mid-2000s or the late 2000s called Thank God You're Here, which was an improvisational comedy show where you walked through a blue door and pretended that you knew what was going on in that scene. So it was, uh, it's not quite improvisational, it's bullshit. It's a celebration of bullshit. You have to just bullshit your way through something rather than improvise your way through something. It's bullshitting, which I thought would be perfect in Italy. You know what I mean? As yes. Italians are the best, you know, the best at making things up. So, and it was the last of the countries that had actually taken up. So it was a real surprise. So it was, it was, it had been, it had been um, uh, syndicated out or not syndicated. They had their own formats in about maybe 20 countries around the world. Italy was the last country wow. to get it, which surprised me, but I'll never forget the time we made the deal. And, um, and I was, I was away somewhere and I was expecting a phone call from the Italian producer and she did call because, you know, my, my colleague said she's, she only speaks Italian so she'll talk to you. And I knew what the phone call was going to be about and she said, Charles, uh, uh, um, uh, I'm the producer of, um, you know, Grazie al cielo sei qui, thank God you're here in Italy. And, um, <laughs> and okay, we love the show, we love the show. And I'm going, yeah, I'm, I know where this is going. She goes, just one thing. I go, what? She goes, I noticed that the show in Australia is one hour long. And I said, yeah. Okay. And she said, can it be three hours long? And, and, and I said, no, no, it's a one hour show. She goes, mm, do you know Italian television? I said, yes, I do know Italian, Italian television. It does go for three hours, but this show doesn't go for three hours. It's, it's, it's a one hour show. And she said, what about two and three quarters? And I said, what about one and a quarter? And we're haggling, we're haggling for times. We are literally so haggling funny. for times. And, you know, in the end, you know, we agreed on an hour and a half, which was in the end bullshit. So it actually ended up going for longer than <laughs> Why though? Why, why because is Italian television, television goes, having sure, six you know, It goes, I, I, yeah. three weeks ago, I spoke to my mum on the phone and I said, how are you going? She's going, oh, I'm watching uh, Ballando con le Stelle. I'm watching Dancing with the Stars in Italy. It's fantastic. It's, you know, and I'm going, really? But, but why would you watch that? You've, you know, she goes, oh, because, uh, you know, Mussolini's granddaughter, she's dancing tonight. And I'm going, wow, that's a, <laughs> that's a big thing. Anyway, she, so she said she's watching the show. I went to dinner at their place that night, right, and I got there and Dancing with the Stars was on. I'm going, are you replaying it now? She goes, no, it's still on. And I literally, <gasps> went, I really, literally went to the Foxtel and I looked at the time. The show went for four and three quarter hours. So, so yeah, no. yeah, it did. It did. That's like me as a fan being like, can we make Thank God You're Here four hours? Because I would adore <laughs> no, it. No, you wouldn't. I promise, Conchetta, no, you wouldn't. I, it was so – and it was hilarious. So I went, I went so over funny. there to, to – consult in inverted commas mm. because they were so unprepared. So I ended up having to go there and basically and write because they weren't ready. And as of, as all Italian television shows went, it went for an entire series, but they decided not to have comics on and they, they'd rather have celebrities on. And, and I yeah. kept on warning them, you know, even if Tom mm. Cruise could do it, don't do it. Don't get that person to do it. Get it. And, the, and when, when they did a rehearsal one day where the ensemble cast, the, the people who have to pretend yeah. along, they were all comics. And they had to do the parts because it was a rehearsal and it was hilarious. And they go, Oh my yeah, God, this show's gonna work. Oh I said, God. No, it's not, because they're comics and you're you're about to get on a you're you're getting on a you know a 70 year old senator on tonight. Anyway. Yes. So anyway, oh so my we, God. Did it. We, we did the show there and it was so ridiculous because you should have heard some of the, the conversations going on. Apart from the fact that I was working jet lagged because I didn't have a time to stop. So everything was totally surreal. But there was a conversation again with the producer and she said, she <laughs> says to me, Santo, do you think, 
we should have at the end of every little sketch, we should have a slow motion replay of, of important moments in that sketch. And I said, no. And she said, why not? I said, well, because first of all, slow motion replay is like, why would you do that? It's you're meant to live live in the moment. And the more you look back at it, the more it makes it you, 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 you're, you're cutting it down. You're analyzing. It's too much. Let the judges say whether it was good or not. And she said, mm, I don't think so. I think when there's, a, there's fear in their eye, you want a slow motion replay and see where that fear is. I said, oh, okay, I, I kind of get that. But you know what? I don't think so. And then she's going, I really think we should do it. And I'm going, come on, this is ridiculous. I know you've got a big show to fill, but I mean, uh, you know, I don't think it's going to work. And then she paused and she said, well, what is our semi-nude going to do? <gasps> so <laughs> she goes, allora la nostra semi-nuda cosa farà? I started laughing and she's going, what are you laughing about? And I said, well, basically I'm laughing at the concept that there's, te- there's technically a word on Italian television for a, a semi-nude. There's a semi-nude. semi-nude. I said, I'm laughing because there's a word for semi-nude. And she said, I'll have you know, she's got a law degree. As in, I was the, as, in, as in I was the guy that was the bad guy. You, how, that's just how judgmental of you. She's got a law And so degree. this is a, sorry, a, a topless woman between segments or not what? topless woman she was like in the because <laughs> she, she ended up coming on <laughs> she, she ended up doing it so if you look at the italian show you'll see the semi-nude definitely she, she wow. basically well you've got to if you i don't know how many italian shows you've seen but usually italian shows consist of an ugly male host who's probably about five foot seven <laughs> and a six foot one leggy a co-host who basically just stands there next to him. In fact, the opening shot of, of Thank God You're Here, when he introduced La, Be- La Bellissima Alessandra, you would turn, the mm. camera started on her ankle and panned up her up her legs. Oh, it literally started off like that. So you know, funny. the seminude would come in and she would like, uh, I think she actually presented bits from the show or she would or maybe um, feedback or something like that. She Anyway, she, she, she was, and she just had a low cut dress, which was, a, a very right. a plunging a plunging uh, neckline, and it was such a yeah. surreal thing because uh, it was shot like all Italian television shows. They're shot either in Cinecittà or old Italian studios that are full of history. So I was in, my hero was Sergio Leone, uh, who made all the great spaghetti westerns of the sixties and seventies. Once upon a time in America, once upon a time in, uh, in the West, and. His his sets are still there. So literally, I was having lunch in these like <laughs> Mexican. Mexican towns and plazas where my, you wow. know, my there's those amazing films were shot. So it was so surreal, so surreal. It was a great experience. It's, I love it. And I'm still keeping contact with those people, but geez, it was hard work. It's so weird. I auditioned for that show and I never heard anything you back. Did not. So, did you? um, to be one of the leggy oh, people, to oh be a semi nuda, so I weird. You, I thank God you're here because that's so, because then, then I would have apologized. So you were. <laughs> You, you're going to be a semi nude. I was a young girl. Yeah. Yes. No. It's weird. I, I, I mean, I'm so beautiful. <laughs> they, they, they missed out. I tell you, be um, careful what you wish for, because there are so many young <laughs> Italian girls that absolutely aspire for that kind of stuff. They really, they oh, aspire to be, yeah. you know, a, a, one of those strange. You think I don't aspire to be a beautiful <laughs> woman on TV? You got to be kidding yourself. It's hard enough in Australia. <laughs> Can I just say? It's actually not easy Hmm. looking this good all the time, okay? Just the other day, I tried to take off my acrylic nails Hmm. at home myself (laughs) and I used the wrong acetone 
And I'm not lying when I tell you my fingers were dyed green for the day. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Listeners, we pray and keep in our prayers in Cheddar, as well as all the semi-nuders who are out there grinding for four straight hours on live Italian TV shows. It ain't easy, but somebody got to do it. But beyond your perfect aesthetics, Conchetta. Thank you. <laughs> No worries. I got two questions. Uh, look, first one. When you meet somebody like that, I mean, Santo Chilauro, someone who, when you look at it closely, has like almost exactly the same family background as you and now really similar career trajectory. I feel like I'm starting to ask this question of you a lot, but how does somebody like that make you feel? It makes me feel amazing. It's so cool to meet someone like Santo and to talk to him. And honestly, he doesn't know and he hasn't agreed, but I consider him my mentor. Nice. <laughs> Santo, you got a protege. She will be knocking at 3 a.m. Uh, okay. My second question is, well, look, Santo works at being Italian. Like it's not something he just leaves on pause. He is digging into it each and every day. He speaks Italian with his parents. He keeps an active interest in contemporary Italian pop culture. He's visiting all the time. He still studies the language. Is that, is that intimidating? Does it inspire you or are you just like, meh, whatever? It totally intimidates me. It makes me mad. I want to punch him. I'm so angry <laughs> at him for being such a good Italian Australian man. Um, the best that I ever do is just eat lots of pasta and claim that that is my way of connecting and being a better Italian. But I hope to take a page out of his book one day. And when I go to Italy, I hope to really smash it and be so good at speaking and learning. Okay. Okay. Well, let, well what are you going to do then? You can't, it's not going to work if you just turn up and think you're going to speak and learn Why so not? well. Why well can't you know, it? What's your first step? What's your. Are you going to Duolingo? Are you going to sign up at Coazit for an adult course? Are you going to reconnect with that family member who speaks perfect Italian, but whose personality you can't stand? <laughs> what are you going to do? I am going to knock on Coazit's door and <laughs> come begging and say, let me in, let me be in the kids class because I want to start from the beginning, yes. even though I'm <laughs> <laughs> Okay, good. Let's wrap this up, folks. Next week, Conchetta and I are going to be speaking with Sydney-based Italo-Australian singer, songwriter, Spotify star, Coda Banks. Looking forward to this one. But before then, please do subscribe to Diaspora Italia on your favourite podcast platform. And while you're there, go on, why not? Leave us a review. Five stars would be nice. And maybe you want to say something along the lines of... Oh, Conchetta, what a star. And I know this is an audio medium, but I could just hear her hair shining and glistening <laughs> and her teeth are sparkling and white. Is that... Yeah, something like that. Ciao a tutti.